Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Some poems force you to write them. The way sirens force their way through window panes in the night and you can't shut out the news even when you try. Write a humanizing poem, my pen and paper goad me. Show them how wrong their preconceptions are. Be relatable. Write something upbeat for a change. Crack a smile. Tell them how you also cry at the end of Toy Story 3 and you're just as capable of bantering about the weather in the post office queue. Like everyone, you have no idea how to make the perfect amount of pasta still. <laughs> Feed them stories of stoic humor. Make a reference to childhood. Tell an anecdote about being frugal, mention the X Factor. Be domestic, successful, add layers. Tell them you know brown boys who cry. About the sides of Assad's, Amir's and Hassan's, they don't know the complex inner worlds of Samayas and Aisha's. Tell them comedies as well as tragedies. How full of life we are, how full of love. But no, I put my pen down. Sahima Manzoor Khan is a writer, educator, and a spoken word poet. Her academic research and other work has been dedicated to interrogating the narratives around race, gender, Islamophobia, and state violence, among others. The extract of her poem, which we've played in the intro, is Sahima. She's performing her piece, This Is Not a Humanizing Poem, which subsequently went viral in 2017 and forms part of an important discussion on the subject of what it means to be a Muslim and British. Against the backdrop of both recent events to redefine the term Islamophobia and Shamima Begum having her British citizenship stripped from her, we wanted to talk to Sahema about the ways in which she thinks that Muslims can be and are being dehumanised and what her interpretation of Islamophobia means for how we reflect on what the British Muslim identity is up against. I'm Sara and this is Small Talk with Sahema Manzoor Khan. Sahima, can you explain what the dehumanisation of Muslims means and what it can look like? Yeah, the dehumanisation um, of Muslims is, is historic um, and it's very, very political. It's not just a kind of accidental or, or even just a tragic thing. It's It's got a real purpose. We all know that a big element of colonisation was this idea that the places we are going and the people that we are going to invade and occupy and conquer are just less um, human than us. And they need to be civilised. They need to be kind of brought into modernity, brought forwards. They need to be taken from their backwards cultures. Um, but all that rhetoric around them being backwards and not quite modern was also bound up with, well, they're not quite human yet. They're, they're kind of pre-human in a way. They're subhuman. Um, and if you skip forward to now, that rhetoric and that well, that ideology never really changed. Um, all that you had was the kind of the form of colonization um, physically uh, had a slight rupture. So you have the uh, the outright occupation in some places disappeared, but in others not at all. Um, but what you find, I think, what's interesting for Muslims is that 
you've gone from a situation where m- the majority of Muslims were geographically outside of the colonizing world. And so there was this kind of easy separation of, well, they're backwards, we're forwards, they're not human, we're human. But now you have this situation where people like um, myself are born here. So you're now a native Muslim, right? But you're, the land that you are native in is defining itself as... as you, well, it's defining you as other and as excluded an outsider. This historic dehumanisation and otherizing of Muslims, which is extended into a complex situation for native Muslims today, as Sahima says, gives way to an even more complex and developing language around what it means to be Islamophobic. A definition and understanding that Muslims like Sahima are taking agency of. So I think Islamophobia often gets assumed to be interpersonal prejudice. Um, and so the examples people will give is like harassment on the street, um, women having hijabs ripped off, um, jokes about being terrorist. And all those things, of course, are Islamophobia. Um, but the point is that Islamophobia is not just that. And I think a much more useful way to think about Islamophobia is that it is beyond the phobia. And the way I think about it is that it's an institutionalized way of understanding Muslims that disadvantages us and allows for injustices to happen to us. The accepted and taken for granted understanding that Muslims are predisposed to violence. The cause of something like terrorism is the identity of being Muslim. And so there's no context given to us and no circumstances. And what happens then is that you have created um, an identity that is criminal, basically. And so you don't you don't kind of wait for people to commit acts of violence to say that they are criminal. You say that this identity is criminal. So you have surveillance of the identity. You have um, criminalization through things like prevent, through Schedule 7, of um, the color of someone's skin, the, the kind of markers of them being Muslim, like maybe a beard or maybe a niqab or maybe um, speaking Arabic on a plane and the fact that all these things lead to people being stopped or questioned or taken off planes reminds us that actually then Islamophobia is this this way of thinking that has informed literally everywhere from from kind of schools to prisons to hospitals to universities um, that means that Muslims or people who are assumed to be Muslim because also there's this conflation of kind of you don't actually have to be theologically um, Muslim um, and it, it can and, and also, like, say if you are um, white or white-passing Muslim, you're much less likely to kind of experience Islamophobia in those ways. So Islamophobia is the way that th- that group of people have been racialized um, and criminalized because of being assumed to be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's how I see it. And I think it's, it's much more useful to see it like that than seeing it as interpersonal. Could you tell us the difference between institutional Islamophobia and a Muslim woman having her hijab ripped off in the street? Anything that's institutional just means that essentially a set of a his, well first that there's a history to it and that and the way i understand it there's a set of processes and behaviors and assumptions so actually if you look at like the mcpherson report after stephen lawrence was murdered um that's the report saying that the police is institutionally racist i think that understanding of institutional is good and it says it's a set of processes behaviors and assumptions that disadvantage discriminate and kind of affect and impact the group of people um, affected. And so in, the ter- in terms of Islamophobia, that means that say when you go to school, because of something like the prevent strategy, but also because of wider media and, and political rhetoric that has informed people, there is an assumption as soon as you enter that classroom as a ch- child who is Muslim, that things that you say have a heightened level of suspicion to them. Counterterrorism sounds quite innocuous. It sounds like it's good, like we all don't like terrorism, but 
actually all counterterrorism has done is not look deeply into the causes of violence, but say that the cause of violence is the identity. And because essentially that institutional practice dehumanizes Muslims. So, so you're in this situation then where it's like, if I see a Muslim woman on the street, I associate her with all those things that I've heard, that Muslims are violent, they're criminal, they're terrorist. And those are all very negative things to be, right? So actually it's perfectly acceptable and justified for me to then attack her because I'm actually not attacking her as an individual. I'm attacking her as a criminal identity. So those things are, yeah, it's not that they're different, it's that they're deeply interconnected and and to analyze one without the other would be a bit of a misunderstanding. What does it mean to be British? And then what does it mean if you're Muslim as well? Um, Great question. Uh, So we would think that being British is uh, perhaps a citizenship identity, that if you have a passport, um, you are British. Um, But what's interesting is that there's become this whole rhetoric from the kind of political class about Britishness. And Britishness becomes more of a cultural identity. Um, But what's interesting is that the kind of traits that make you British are very ambiguous. And so it ranges from these very like random things like, oh, cups of tea and, you know, which again aren't actually British, (laughs) where tea comes from. But um, more insidiously, the kind of things that, for example, are used in schools as part of the anti-radicalization agenda, and that says that British values are toleration, democracy, the rule of law, something else, I forget them, Um, (laughs) don't know how British I am, but, but the point being those things are seen to be what makes someone British. And because they're so ambiguous, you can selectively apply them. So what I think is really interesting to look at is actually when it comes down to it, what what is it that actually makes somebody British? And if you look at government legislation and policy, so there's a report um, from 2017, Louise Casey report. And in there she says, and it's really worth quoting, she says, in areas where there are high concentrations of ethnic minorities, um, people are less likely to develop British values. So what she doesn't say is that in areas where there are high concentrations of white majority population, people are less likely to develop those values. So the suggestion here is not that it's about um, a concentrated ethnicity, but that ethnic minorities are less likely to develop them. And the implication is that therefore, if you are white, you probably just know British values. They're just inherent. You're born with them, maybe. But if you're a person of colour, well, you're not born with them. They're not natural to you. You're going to have to learn them. And so you're already automatically based on the colour of your skin, uh, defined as an outsider to Britishness. And if Britishness is something you have to learn, your Britishness will always be under suspicion. How can we ever really trust that you are British? And that's why you then have something like the Windrush scandal, right? Where these people of colour, well, yeah, you were here all your lives, but actually you were never fully British. Because all it comes down to in the end is that Britishness cannot define itself beyond whiteness. And that, and that is really why there's all this talk about, you know, what is it, what, how, what can it be? But we know because that very question that we all know of where are you really from is the question of Britishness is whiteness. Therefore you, whilst you're here and you live here, you are not really from and of here. The British values that Sahima alludes to here have been put under the magnifying lens in recent weeks, with the events unfolding around Shamima Begum. The British-born, now 19-year-old Muslim woman who travelled to Syria to join IS at the age of 15, and who has in recent weeks been stripped of her British citizenship. For Sahima, the way Shamima's case was also stripped of context provides a poignant example of the uncomfortable reality that may be forcing a lot of British Muslims to reevaluate their perceived Britishness against the backdrop of what's happened with Shamima. What's interesting is that her citizenship, so her legal British status, could be removed only because it was assumed, and and this is what, and so in the law, the Home Office, uh, the minister has to be satisfied 
that you could receive citizenship from another country in order to, to strip you of it here. And the only way that they can be satisfied is if they think there's another country where you could belong. And what will that be based on the color of your skin? With this case, what you see is that at no point um, is the British state going, what ha- is happening right now in Syria and, and surrounding places is is a partly a direct outcome of British policy and British history and British imperialism. Um, at no point do you have anyone going, um, what, what led, what genuinely, what led to a 15 year old girl leaving her home? That's a real, like just, just on a very normal mundane level. That is wild. That's a wild thing to happen. There's this very arrogant um, assumption from the British state that, you know, citizens must be loyal to us. And all you do when you say that is say, well, we refuse to look at our complicity in violence. And it all comes back to the, you know, the original thing about dehumanizing Muslims and saying that we're predisposed to violence. Because when you say the cause of violence, the cause of, you know, things like ISIS is Muslims themselves, you don't have to look at foreign policy, the arms trade, um, state surveillance, socioeconomic, racialization, racial profiling, any of these structural things, which definitely if Shamima Begum was a white girl, we would go instantly, well, what is the context that led to her leaving this country? And oh my God, she's had three babies in the time that she's gone and she's been kind of sexually violated, exploited, um, which is how we would narrate it no matter what, because she was under 18. So it doesn't matter, you know, forget about, you know, any questions of agency, That that's the way we would narrate it. And so it's, there where you see that this is about race and this is about the way that you're racialized. Um, and that really reminds you then of the really important point, which is that belonging is precarious for people of color in Britain. This is not, there is no guarantee. She has become very symbolic in this, as Muslim women often are. Muslim women, anytime Muslim women is talked about, it's not really about us. It's about um, the nation or it's about um, kind of um, super, whose values are superior or assimilation or, or assimilation done wrong you know like the, the week of kind of watching the reactions to Shamima Begum and then seeing her her child die was really I think affected me in a way that is, is a structural level where it's not personal at all and how dare I you know in a way I'm just like how dare I be affected by that because it's not my you know, family, it's not my, um, but it's, it's that feeling of, well, our humanity is in, inextricably linked. And she is, um, you know, this girl who just ends up in this situation and nobody cares. And I think that feeling structurally unloved is really hurtful. Do you think there's a pressure for us to prove our Britishness? And where does that pressure come from? Mm. Uh, does that mean we have to dilute what it means to be Muslim? Mm, that's interesting. I think in a way it's dangerous to reify like what being Muslim is and what that looks like and et cetera. But I do think in part of making ourselves palatable to the nation state and, and a citizenship identity, we run the risk of, of kind of seeing ourselves first and foremost as citizens rather than first and foremost as souls. Um, and in a way, then that runs the risk of kind of, of, of thinking of yourself in an Islamic way because your primary identity becomes this very, like, uh, just kind of presentist thing. And, it, and, and it's a construct that you're relying on rather than, um, your relationship with God. And I think that there's also a, kind of an embarrassment around having a relationship with God. And I think the uh, idea that to be British also means to be kind of mocking of religion and, and this kind of secularist undertone, which is like, oh, well, you know, religion is slightly backwards after all. Um, so I think there, that we do run the risk of kind of in trying to be palatable, really losing ourselves and, and losing losing that reality. And I think we feel it because I think people, there's an awkwardness when you kind of are then amongst Muslims and it's like, oh, well, yeah, no, obviously I do believe in God, but yeah, just like, let's keep it up on the DL. Um, 
but unfortunately and, and again I think it's unfortunate because it's people have assumed that it's their theological practice or belief that is what is distancing them from when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Britishness rather than racism. Do you think there's an element of complicity in the Muslim community towards our own dehumanization? Interesting. Um, I think I'm wary because I, w- I would never put the onus um of kind of the violence that, that people face on them, those people, whoever they are. So I don't think that the dehumanization of Muslims can be kind of, you know, Muslims can be blamed for basically. Um, but, but what you're saying is interesting, whether there's an element of um, kind of complicity or reproduction of our own dehumanization in some of the things that we do. Um, and I guess, I guess at times, I guess at times there is a... Um, Perhaps, perhaps a complacency, and I think you see that in in two ways, maybe. And one is is the actually the tendency to to want to humanize ourselves rather than to ask why we are being dehumanized. And so you see that a lot, and I and I myself have experienced it, and I'm sure all, a lot of us have, where you know um, you want to just prove that you you are human, and you know I have feelings too, and I cry too, and, and no, I'm not just a terrorist actually. But the point is that when you do that sadly you're actually kind of reproducing the binary of human and non-human because you're saying that there are some people though that aren't human and you're you're proving yourself to be human relies on there being some people that aren't um and you see that a lot with you know proving that you're a good immigrant is by saying well there are some that are bad proving that you're you know whatever what would be more powerful and more useful would be to say um why would you assume that i'm not human to start with I mean, I will say first, like, I don't think it's a, a malicious or bad thing to want to humanize yourself as a Muslim. And I think we're all prone to wanting to be seen as human, of course. Um, but the reason that it's it's not good is because it's not going to humanize you. <laughs> Sadly, it's not going to help you and you will remain dehumanized because you've not asked what the function of that is. So the red flags and the kind of things we're talking about here are... Um, anything, basically, that tries to normalize you. So I think a classic example was that um, happy video so like Muslims are happy um, we're normal anything that kind of becomes about disproving the terrorist stereotypes so people doing work around um, and sometimes that comes in the forms of you know sometimes people will ask if I'll be part of their dissertation research or whether I'll do sort of um, a blog post and I think there's a lot of kind of online platforms dedicated in my opinion quite sadly to proving that Muslims are not terrorists and proving that they are human um, the other th- the way that you see a lot is kind of uh, the condemnation culture so you know kind of will you come out and say that you oppose this thing that a Muslim did and the 
onus upon you to do that is to push yourself from non-human into human category and so it's very tempting to do that of course it is it's like no yeah we definitely want to distance ourselves from those people but not realizing that actually in distancing all you're doing is reinforcing that there are bad and evil muslims out there and they do for do therefore need surveilling and kind of treating with suspicion and, and we may very well fall into that because until we speak <laughs> and who is to know whether we are one who condemns or one who doesn't so bad but i think these are just things to reflect on in yourself which are you know, when do you silence yourself over what issues do you not speak up? And I think that sometimes to to be palatable and to kind of come across as, you know, not just another angry Muslim, you might not say certain things when topics come up about 9-11 or terrorism or um, even just foreign policy in general or about kind of the way that Islamophobia functions or racism. But then even things like you know, I was having a conversation with some friends recently about saying inshallah and alhamdulillah and things like that, you know, amongst non-Muslim peers um, or colleagues or whatever. Um, and I think obviously, you know, like live your life how you need to, survive how you need to, don't be hypervisible if you don't want to be. But wondering and think reflecting on why you're doing that, because there is definitely an element of proving that you are closer to normal, quote unquote, which is always proving that you're closer to human. And always has this kind of, because I think what it is, is we're always in the shadow of this other Muslim who is um, threatening to consumers. And so it's always trying to distance ourselves from that Muslim. And that Muslim is super Muslim, you know, because actually here's the other thing is that being dehumanized and um, kind of the, the, the violence that is seen to be inherent in Muslims and the way that Muslims are criminalized what's happened is that it's not anything specific that has become the crime, but being Muslim. And so therefore, actually what you find is that the more Muslim you appear to be, the more potentially violent you're assumed to be. So that is why things like, you know, saying inshallah, alhamdulillah, like that's, you're showing yourself to be more Muslim and therefore potentially more violent and therefore more distant from humanity because actually you're more, uh, what is inherent to you is not humanness, but backwardsness is for an external gaze and a white voyeur who is looking at us and asking, are you human or not? Do I treat you as human or not? And I think it's really tragic if we waste our lives answering that question and not working on the work we could be doing. I think Toni Morrison says it really well and she says, um, that racism, one of the main functions of racism is distraction. Um, they will they will say to you that, you know, um, you don't have any history and you'll spend 20 years going and researching it and showing that you do. They'll say your head size is not as big as ours and you spend 20 years finding that you do. And she's talking about black people specifically in America and the racism that they face. Um, but I think it's, it's um, very easy to apply the same logics to, um, you know, dehumanization in general and to say, my God, you could waste your entire life trying to prove you're human and it wouldn't stop or help you. In 2017, Sahima won second place at the London Roundhouse Poetry Slam for her writing and performance of This Is Not A Humanising Poem. Her performance went subsequently viral for putting a language to feelings that resonate with members of the Muslim community and beyond. It was less that I had said anything novel or um, kind of revolutionary and only that I had said exactly what <laughs> everyone felt. And so it made, in it, after a while, it made sense, um, you know, in a way that it, it had resonated so strongly with people because um, I think, you know, alhamdulillah, I was just able to kind of articulate something that it was very latent, but maybe unspoken um, by a lot of us, which was that this trap that we feel to humanize ourselves, but know as we do it, that actually we're being stripped of our humanity in that moment because we, we weren't loved the moment before and the moment within that question of, well, are you human or not? Do you condemn or not? Um, so I was surprised um, and, and kind of taken aback, but then I think now looking back at it, it, it makes a lot of sense. In a world where Islamophobia doesn't exist, 
um, and oppression of any kind, what would you write poetry about? I think sometimes that maybe I would be able to write and um, spend more time generally on on Islam and like really becoming Muslim. And you know, when you think about like Rumi and the kind of poetry that that actually is a really like has a really long history in Islam and a long tradition. Um, I think maybe I maybe I would be maybe I'd be a more spiritual person, um, but maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I'd be really complacent. Um, so sometimes I think that you know that thing that the tests are the blessings as well. So maybe that living in this time of oppression is, in a way, a blessing in the sense that you know it does make me very feel reliant upon God in a lot of ways that maybe I would be complacent about. I don't know, not to make this directly about, but this person who was like, you know, do you not ever write any love poems? Well. And I was thinking about it and I was like, well, you know, in a, in a sense, all my poems are love poems because they are the love that I have for for this community and for people who are oppressed. And and I think anger is a type of love because you wouldn't you wouldn't feel such um, pain about injustice if you didn't care. And care is love. So I think actually poetry is the work of love is my answer. <laughs> For Sahema, her ability to articulate these experiences is grounded in her role as the quote-unquote good immigrant in her family, because she wasn't the immigrant. As the British-born member of a family of first-generation migrants from Pakistan, Sahema says that she was positioned to flip between her accessibility to Britishness, things like the way she speaks English and her attendance to Cambridge, contrasted against her knowledge that her loved ones at home were still full and complex human beings, a true reality against the arbitrary value systems we can all sometimes be presented with. Like I said, there's very everyday encounters throughout growing up, um, studying at university and things and realising that, oh, right, so hang on, this is nothing about how intelligent you are. But I think it just made me very aware that, hmm, everything is not exactly as it says that it is. And um, there is overwhelmingly a lot of injustice. Working in, you know, the field that you are and, and, and having such care and dedication to the subjects that you're in and even um, recognising that it's easy sometimes to fall into those traps. I was wondering how the work that you do and the kind of influences around you affect your mental health um, and how you kind of overcome some of those mm. challenges? Yeah, I think, well, I think maybe it's important to say that we don't always overcome the challenges. Um, and I think that right now, actually, to be quite frank, I'm, I'm struggling quite a lot. And I'm, uh, I think there's, I think we really valorise like um, people who keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, and we don't really valorize like people who take long breaks. And I think we should, because I think, um, I really feel like I'm running the risk of burning out at the moment. And I think a lot of us are, is the other thing. I think a lot of people our age. Um, and I think we have this maybe quite young and naive sense that the, you know, five years from now, the world will look very different, but actually the struggle will still be out there and it's okay to, you know, take, take a week out. But I think a, a, a thing that we have to remember as well is that we don't have to react to everything. And that if God really is our witness and witness to everything that's happening, then, you know, it's, it's okay to just, sometimes it also, maybe we fall into a bit of performativity with it. And it's like, oh, I'm going to react to this thing too, because that's my, that's what people know that I do. I react to things. It's, it's also like, what service are you to others if you're not a service to yourself? And honestly, like, you know, that hadith, that um, love for your brother, what you love for yourself, if you if you do not love anything for yourself to start with, then thus you're not in good stead. And I think, I really do think a big part of being Muslim is loving yourself because you have to see the value that is inherent in you that God has given you. And to do that, you have to, you know, like that takes a lot of like actual caring for yourself. What are three things we can do to contribute to the fight against Islamophobia? Okay, so one thing I think we can do is um, expose what Islamophobia is. So um, 
I think in to resist anything, you have to define what that thing is. So expose where it is, where it's happening, what the experiences are. But two, like delve into that, educate yourself, read, listen, learn, um, listen to people who actually are experiencing those things too. Um, support like on the ground initiatives like hugs, um, like charities doing research um, and people campaigning and lo- locally kind of advocating for things. Get involved with your local kind of um I think because then what that does is it takes exposing um, Islamophobia to the next level, which is also delving into it and going, well, what's its impact? How is it harming us? Um, And ideally what that leads to is then advocating against it. And I think honestly, a lot of the work in resisting is, is exposing because when you denaturalize something, when you say this is it's not okay for it to be this way, you show that it has a political function. Um, and since we're not necessarily power wielders um, in, in an institutional way, then just, just doing that is really important um and a third way as well would be create communities like be be in solidarity with one another because you you can't you can't do this on your own and also you're not you're not muslim on your own you're dehumanized in this way um on on a mass scale so yeah find you know find even whether it's just for your own benefit to validate your own feelings um but but because we need to really create a culture of resistance i think it's if it's too sporadic and too individualized it's not it's not going to be sustainable I will not let that poem force me to write it because it is not the poem I want to write. It is the poem I have been reduced to. Reduced to proving my life is human because it is relatable, valuable because it is recognizable. But good GCSEs, family and childhood memories are not the only things that count as a life. Living is. So this will not be a Muslims are like us poem. I refuse to be respectable. Instead, love us when we're lazy. Love us when we're poor. Love us in our back-to-backs, council estates, depressed, unwashed and weeping. Love us high as kites, unemployed, joyriding, time-wasting, failing at school. Love us filthy, without the right colour passports, without the right sounding English. Love us silent, unapologising, shopping in Poundland, skiving off school, unsure, homeless, sometimes violent. Love us when we aren't athletes, when we don't bake cakes, when we don't offer our homes or free taxi rides after the event, when we're wretched, suicidal, naked and contributing nothing. Love us then. Because if you need me to prove my humanity, I'm not the one that's not human. My mother... My mother texts me too after BBC News alerts. Are you safe? Let me know you're home okay. And she means safe from the incident, yes, but also from the after effects. So sometimes I wonder, Which days of the week might I count as liberal and which moments of forehead to the ground am I conservative? I wonder, when you buy bombs, is there a clear difference between the deadly ones that kill and the heroic ones which scatter democracy? I wonder, is it not guilty until proven innocent? How can we kill in the name of saving lives? How can we illegally detain in the name of maintaining the law? I can't write it. I put my pen away. I can't, I won't write it. Is this radical? Am I radical? Because there is nowhere else left to exist now. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Small Talk. You can find more episodes of Small Talk on the Amalia Voices podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback, so hit us up at contribute at amalia.com and tell us what you liked or took away from this episode. You can find Amalia on Instagram at amalia underscore com and on Twitter at amalia underscore tweets. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Sarah Amin, and music by Ryan Little, who you can find on SoundCloud, Apple, and Spotify. 
A massive thank you to Tahima for joining us. Like, share and subscribe and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.